0: thyroid, T3, weight loss, all of your questions that you have given to us. And by us, I mean, Dr. Weston Childs and I from our last podcast together, we are now getting together and answering them. This is going to be just a phenomenal podcast. I know I say that about all of them, that it's my favorite, but I think this one is my favorite. Like we said on the last one, Dr. Childs and I have such similar views on the thyroid and treatment and medication, timing, dosing. We talk about all of that on today's show. Dr. Weston Childs is an internist. He is a functional specialist in the thyroid, weight loss expert, and him and I just, we share the same brain. I joke about it all the time. We talk about the same things in the same way. And we just we love unpacking thyroid problems and helping all of you get your questions answered. Are you finally at your wit's end where you are tired of dealing with doctor after doctor? Maybe you've spent thousands on integrative or functional practitioners that have not helped you at all because they don't know the thyroid and hormones. They're not even testing properly. So come work with myself and my team. We prescribe to all 50 states and parts of Canada, I have you covered. you're going to recognize the person you see in the mirror again. Doesn't that sound absolutely amazing? Well, it might sound like you don't even believe it, but I promise you, I promise you, we will take good care of you. So click the link in the show notes, book a call today, and we'll be talking to you soon. So please enjoy today's show. This is going to be a great one. This is a dual podcast with Dr. Weston Childs and I. You can also find this on his podcast that's just under his name, Dr. Weston Childs, on all podcast platforms.
1: Hey guys, Dr. Childs here. Today I am joined with Dr. Amy Horniman. Uh, Dr. Amy Horneman and I, we had an interview, a podcast, uh, a couple months ago, I think now, and uh, it was received pretty well. And we had a ton of questions, a ton of follow-up questions. And so what we wanted to do today is get back together and go over a lot of those questions and sort of answer uh, some of the things that you guys had that were pressing on your mind. So uh, Dr. Amy, welcome to the show. It's uh, good to have you again.
0: Hey, Dr. Weston. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining me. And this should be a lot of fun because I got a ton of questions too.
1: Good, good. And um, by the way, just so everyone knows, this will be a joint podcast like our last one. So it's going to go up on my podcast. It'll go up on hers as well. So you can listen to it in in either place. It'll also end up on YouTube and a couple other places. So um, Dr. Amy, she has a bunch of questions. So I'm going to hand it over to her and then we'll just kind of go back and forth on these questions and it should be pretty good.
0: Sounds great. So, you know, when we were talking last time, you and I dove into T3 because we both Mm -hmm. love it. We both use it. We recommend it. So Mm -hmm. we, I had a lot of questions on T3 that I'm just going to throw out there and you and I can discuss We can go back and forth. So the very first question, and I find this interesting because it's true. Do we all need T3? What is your take on that?
1: Yeah. So the way that I like to approach these things is I like to like to look at uh, physiology. Okay. And so if you look at the thyroid physiology itself, it kind of says a lot. And then what I do is I kind of work backwards from there. So if I know, for instance, that a, a younger person has X amount of testosterone, X amount of progesterone, estrogen, and thyroid hormone, and then I kind of look at that as like the, the prototype of what I would want somebody to have in order to kind of feel optimal, right? And so when you look at thyroid physiology, the physiology shows that that humans, they produce some amount of T3. Now, when you look at the studies, it's variable. I like to use the 20% uh, rule. So the thyroid gland is producing about 20% T3 and about 80% T4. So when you look at it in those terms, my my response is if you're going to replace lost thyroid hormone because you're hypothyroid, meaning your thyroid is not producing enough thyroid hormone, then you better probably at least approximate what the body would do in that natural state. So with that in mind, I kind of like to use that 20% production of T3 thyroid hormone from the thyroid gland as a starting point for most people. So my general recommendation for most patients, and this isn't true universally, and we'll probably talk about this as we go, is that you kind of at least think about adding in 20% T3 to whatever amount of T4 that you are taking. Now that amount can be variable, but that's kind of how I think about it in those terms. Now we can go even deeper and say, do people require T3? Well, yeah, people do require T3, but they don't have to take T3 necessarily to get that T3. And I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes in. And that's this concept of T4 to T3 conversion, where that occurs and how much you need and how well you're able to convert and so on. But from a philosophical level and a, a physiologic level, yeah, I do think people, obviously they need T3. And I think people benefit from the addition of T3 with their T4. So that's kind of where I sit. What do you think?
0: Well, 100%. I mean, that's why we we jive so well together because we agree on so many things and mm-hmm. we say so many of the same things. So I, I say the very similar thing, 80-20 split from your thyroid gland when it is working, when it's, when it's producing the correct amounts of T4 mm-hmm. and T3, we see in general, like you said, an 80-20 split. Mm-hmm. So if we consider the fact that every cell in our body has a receptor site on it for T3, If you're not converting T4 to T3, or, and this is going to lead into our next question, if you've had a total thyroidectomy and we remove the gland that was producing T3 and we remove the main conversion gland and we take that away, then T3 is necessary. I would say, I would go so far as to say required. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of practitioners just using T4 in total thyroidectomy patients, which is, is wrong. So yes, I do believe just like you, I believe we need T3. I do see improvements when we use T3, especially in patients that are having trouble converting, mm-hmm. definitely in patients that have had a total thyroidectomy, radioactive iodine, even partial thyroidectomy because mm-hmm. you remove part of the thyroid gland. So yeah, yeah that's where I stand there. I was going to say yeah. that leads into the next question of having a total thyroidectomy and- okay. Her doctor only giving her five micrograms of T3, but go ahead and finish your thought. We can dive into that.
1: It's perfect. Actually, it, it goes right into this. So uh, I did an article where I talked about using T4 only in the cases of thyroidectomy. And so it shows that when you take people who don't have a thyroid and you give them level thyroxine, which... I think everyone knows this, but levothyroxine contains only T4. And when we talk about T3, these are special medications that contain T3. We'll talk about those cytominal, even some natural desiccated thyroid formulations and so on. But most patients who have no thyroid, they are given only levothyroxine, which is T4. And when you look at these patients and then you look at healthy cohorts and you compare them, you see that the people who no longer have a thyroid taking only T4 never have the same level of T3 as those people who have healthy thyroids. And this leads us to believe, or at least this leads me to believe the conclusion I draw from that is there's something special about the thyroid gland that's necessary, necessary to get those T3 to healthy levels. Okay. So what you were talking about, I think I absolutely agree with. And that is if you have no thyroid, and also I would include in here those who are in end stage Hashimoto's, which Mm -hmm. I do think those people kind of get neglected a little bit. Not neglected, but I think it's they get. They're they're included in this group, right? And I think that those patients benefit tremendously from the addition of T3. Now, this question is also, I think, a good one, which I think we're going to talk about in just a second. And that is, how much T3 do you actually need? Because five micrograms, like we're going to talk about, is is a baby dose. That's that's a micro dose. So I I just wanted to kind of mention that. But yeah, go ahead, go to the question.
0: Yeah. I mean, so she had a total thyroidectomy. The doctor will only give her five micrograms of T3 and she still has hypo symptoms, but her doctor is saying he does not want to give her more due to TSH already being suppressed. So there's kind of two questions in one there.
1: Yeah. So I guess the question is, and we kind of talked about this previously, we talked about the idea of lowering your TSH, suppressing your TSH and whether or not that's dangerous or whether or not you should do that in that setting. Now I will say this when it comes to T3 dosing, I think that's a little bit separate than the TSH suppression kind of thing. And, but I will talk about that first. Then we'll talk about the T3. First of all, I would say that T3, the five microgram is is pretty much a baby dose. I think, you know, you, if you're familiar with T3, which most doctors are not, that's sort of what they do endocrinologists will say oh you're on 100 mics of 100 micrograms of low thyroxine and you're you probably have low t3 and they're like well what am i going to do here and so they're like eh, let's throw in five micrograms of t3 and see where that puts you but that's you know that's not doing anything you know in, in a way it's like peeing into the atlantic ocean like it's, it's not going to change anything there right and so they get a little worried about that because as they, they know, the endocrinologist knows that as they increase the total amount of thyroid hormone that you're taking, that will lower the TSH even further. But this is sort of, it doesn't always make sense because the whole idea in a lot of cases of especially if you had your thyroid removed, you do, you're, you're aiming for that TSH suppression, right? They, they want that because that reduces the risk of cancer recurrence. So if on one hand, you're going to say, I'm afraid to give you T3 because I don't want to suppress your thyroid. And on the other, at the same time, you're thinking in your head, I need to suppress the thyroid because we don't want to increase the risk of cancer. These things don't really jive with one another, right? You're not making sense. It's a little hypocritical. And so I think that's where you can kind of point to a doctor and say, do you really know what you're talking about? Because this is, doesn't really make sense. Um, physiologically, it's okay to suppress it. So why do you care if it's suppressed with T4 or T3, right? That shouldn't matter. And if I do need suppression because I you're, you're worried about the risk of cancer, then how do you? why do you care how I get there, right? Um, and I guess what was she talking about in this question, I, I sort of glossed over that. Was she saying she was not feeling very well at... Regardless of taking this, correct.
0: Yep, still having yeah. hypo symptoms,
1: still having hypo symptoms. So, yeah, that would be very common, and that kind of leads back to what I was saying previously. And that is a baby dose. Um, all right. So, if you go back to what we talked about previously with thyroid physiology, the 80 20 rule, if you're taking 100 micrograms of T4, you want about 20 micrograms of T3. And that, by the way, um, is sort of just the starting point. You might have people who need 30, 40, 50 percent of T3 compared to their T4, maybe even 100 percent of T3, right? You, you have these. Metric of uh, of uh, T four over here and T three over here, and they can kind of go up and down depending on the individual. I just sort of start here and then figure out what I need to do. And so I would say, yeah, you're, you're, it doesn't really matter even if you have a suppressed TSH, even if you're on T three, if that dose of T three is insufficient. So uh, that's kind of a it's kind of a complicated topic, but that's sort of um, what I would say to her briefly. What What about you? What are your thoughts on that?
0: And I agree. And and coming back to basic physiology, let's remember what TSH is. I think so many doctors, they get out of med school, they start practicing. And and if they're not specializing, now she's seeing an endocrinologist, I get that. But as you and I know, most endos don't deeply know the thyroid and and thyroid function. So if we go back and we look at, okay, remember TSH is a pituitary hormone. It's not a thyroid hormone. So we can't measure whether this woman is hyper which i'm sure her doctor is saying that she's hyper because her tsh is suppressed we can't measure that on tsh alone we have to look at now she didn't provide what her free t3 and free t4 numbers were or her reverse t3 but when we look at that whole picture of taking into account all of the different thyroid values and then asking that person how do you feel and there's still that presence of hypothyroid symptoms that haven't been alleviated yet then we then we get that full picture instead of just being tunnel vision into the TSH alone, which I think is the incorrect way to treat a person.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's a, a lot of confusion. And even with the language that we use, by the way, I, I feel like we need to come out and say kind of state what the what a hyperthyroid state is what a hypothyroid state is because you'll have endocrinologists who will tell patients they're hyperthyroid then they'll come to me and I'm like you're hypothyroid and then you'll have hyperthyroid patients with grave's disease who will who are have their thyroid removed and they'll be saying I'm hyperthyroid I'm like no 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 if your thyroid has been removed or ablated you are not hyperthyroid like right. you may become hypothyroid if you're taking excessive thyroid medication, but in the current landscape, that's pretty, very rare, right? Most people are underdosed, not overdosed. Mm-hmm. And so the, the language I think in this setting matters. So, and and what you hear and how you hear it also matters. So in this case, a lot of endocrinologists will be telling patients they're hyperthyroid because their TSH is low. And as you just said, I, I think perfectly that that often is not the case. In fact, you can have a lower suppressed TSH and still be hypothyroid. And that's probably more common than taking levothyroxine and becoming hyperthyroid. So in the, in the case of a low TSH, but in the absence of hyperthyroid symptoms, hair loss, weight gain, well, different type of hair loss, uh, usually, but diarrhea, weight gain, hand tremors, rapid heartbeat, heart palpitations, et cetera. I can almost guarantee you are not hyperthyroid, even with a low TSH, you know, you could take 500 micrograms of level thyroxine and I promise you that will drop your TSH to a suppressible level, right, and yet you will not feel well, right? You will, you're, most people probably will not. And so it's not until you actually tweak that dose of T4 and T3 to get those dialed in that you will then start to alleviate those hypothyroid symptoms. And yes, you might end up with a lower suppressed CSH, which is what we talked about previously, but that may not be a problem. Or at the very least, it may be something you're willing to risk for the benefit of having a healthy life and and living your life in an optimal way. And so I think that's really, really, really important when it comes to thyroid. And so often talked, you know, just glossed over by endocrinologists, they sort of take this, this stance where they're like, no, this is the way we're going to do it. Your TSH must be here. And, you know, if you have symptoms and weight gain and depression and hair loss and whatever it is, then that's just it. You're just gonna have to deal with that. And uh, I think that's an unacceptable way to approach that risk, versus reward, payoff of, of thyroid management.
0: And if you look at the whole picture, the, the amount of people, the amount of lab results, thyroid lab results that you and I have seen over the years, mm-hmm. how many times do we see a, a, a suppressed TSH, including myself, most likely in your wife too, because we touched on her the last mm-hmm. podcast, mm-hmm. that there's no indication whatsoever of hyper, none, zero, zip. So if we can take, even, even from a research standpoint, when we're taking that amount of, of data And we're looking at all of these people, let's say there's 100 people between the two of us, all of them have suppressed TSH values, none of them are experiencing hyper symptoms, Mm -hmm. none of the other thyroid lab results are indicating hyper, so therefore we can, I mean, that completely rules out going by TSH alone to diagnose.
1: I agree completely, and and nowadays when you there's so many there's wearable technology. My my wife was going crazy. I threw it across the room because it wouldn't shut up. I couldn't turn it off. But th- that's a wearable technology which gives you a measurement of your heart rate. Okay, so if you were actually worried, we have 24 seven monitoring of your heart rate. Right, if you were worried that you were hyperthyroid, this would be reflected in your heart rate. And if you were sleeping and your heart rate, you know, resting heart rate is 65, uh, 70, or even you know, 50 in the hypothyroid case, and it's not 90, 100, 120. Then there is basically zero chance that you're hyperthyroid. Now, yes, heart rate is not a perfect reflection of thyroid function, but it's a pretty good proxy reflection um, and it can be used in certain cases. And so, uh, what you'll see if you've ever treated a hyperthyroid patient, I know you probably have, um, but as a patient, they probably, you know, you you probably would never see this, but they come in and their heart rate resting is 130, 140. Okay. So, how can they tell you that you're hyperthyroid with a resting heart rate of 65, 70? You know, that's half of what it would be if you were truly hyperthyroid. And with wearable technology like that, just grab a Fitbit, grab an Apple Watch, whatever it is, and put it on. And you can look for it yourself. It tracks it 24-7. That's, it's a really simple, easy proxy for determining where your thyroid is at. Not not perfect, right? Don't uh, assume that this is going to say, well, my thyroid is good or bad because of this, because it can be influenced by medications, beta blockers, et cetera. Um, but it's a pretty good way to just start there. And then there are other measurements as well, as you really, if you were really worried about, which we talked about last time, echocardiogram and uh, DEXA scanning for the bone density and whatnot. So there are things that you can do as well.
0: Exactly. Exactly. I love that. So moving into timing of T3, which I actually find this interesting, too, because personally, so I'm on T3 only, we talked about Mm -hmm. that last time, and Mm -hmm. I dose mine first thing upon waking, so it's usually around like 6 or 6.30 a.m. I take my second dose around 2 p.m. I cannot go... 12 hours, because if I took my second dose of T3 at 6 p.m., I already have sleep issues. Mm. That's the last thing I need is for T3 to be peaking at 10 p.m. Right. and then screwing up my sleep. Now, I know some, some advocates say you need that 12 hour. You need the same time every day. and It has to be 12 hours apart. So this question is, when spacing T3, what is the ideal time, ideal time to take the next dose?
1: Yeah. And I'm going to probably go against the grain here. This is just based off my own experience. Um, and so, you know, what you'll find, by the way, if, as you're listening to this is that different practitioners and providers have different, you know, they lean in certain ways and it's it's fine. And I think a lot of thyroid patients will get confused and they'll be like, well, he said this and she said that or whatever. And they're like, who's right? I'm like, There's a world in which we can all be right, you know, in whatever microcosm we live in, and so this is what I would generally do. Um, I actually previously, I'm not, I'm not uh, practicing or providing medication right now, but I had a lot of experience in doing this in the, you know, previous years, Mm -hmm. and um, so I use a lot of T3. I would actually tend to recommend using T3 in the evening, um, provided it did not interrupt your sleep. So it sounds like you are probably one of those sensitive people who tend to, I shouldn't even say sensitive, but it just tends to amp you up a little bit, right? Right. Um, And so that definitely happens uh, in some percentage of people. I I think a lot of people can't handle. And the reason my logic sort of behind this was number one, I want T3. I put priority on T3 pretty much in every aspect. And so when it comes to absorption, I like it to be given in the night because I think it allows for unopposed absorption throughout the entire evening and a rise in T3 around the time that cortisol would be rising as well. Not exactly, as you said, it's, you know, it's, it's probably peaking truly in the middle of the night, but, but at least it's coming down, you know, and, and when, and cortisol is supposed to be peaking in the morning as well. So my philosophy there was let's, let's not, let's not put anything in the mix in terms of food or or other supplements or anything like that, which could interfere with this absorption. We'll maximize absorption and then try and peak it around the same time as cortisol. And then if they were taking another T4, T3 combo, which would be usually like NDT or purosyn, which is what I would prefer to use if, if you are taking T4, that would be taken in the morning. So I would do like a night morning sort of thing. And then, from that, that's where I would kind of start. And then from there you can determine, okay, are you somebody who has an afternoon slump or a morning slump or a mid mid afternoon slump? Do you need to take it two times per day? Do you need to take it three times per day? Do we need to split your T3 dose total and take some in the night and some in the morning and vice versa? And so you kind of have to play around with it. And my sort of philosophy was start there and then determine how you can kind of play around with it at that point. And I will say this too, just because I want to, I want to pull, put this out there for those people listening. I've really never found a thyroid patient that couldn't find success it, with tweaking all of these variables right so there, there's so many little levers and knobs that you can pull that you can twist that you can turn and between all these things different medications different formulations sustained release immediate release and so on taking it you know three times per day four times per day once per day you have yeah. so many options available to you that you can pretty much always find something that works for every single person now i will hear people that will say oh i tried so many different things that didn't work i'm like there are hundreds of variations that you can do and as long as you have somebody that will just keep pounding you know uh, that door down and pounding their head against it they you will find something that works for you. So that's kind of where I start. It sounds like we are kind of a di- somewhat different in that approach, um, but I'd like to hear kind of what you think about that.
0: Well, not totally different. So I, I say the same thing about the variations and combinations and ways to do it. I mean, there's mm-hmm. so many. You can't you can't get stuck in what you first learned when you were first diagnosed, which mm-hmm. was here, take Synthroid, take it in the morning, call it a day, yeah. because there's so much more we can do. There are different medications. There's different timings of the medications. There's different combinations. And like you mentioned earlier, we can even change that ratio of T4 to T3. Mm-hmm. If you're taking an NDT and we add T3 in, now we've changed that 82. 80, 20 ratio to maybe a 60 40 or a 50 50 50 split. So there's so many different things we can do. Now, that being said, what you what you just said, two comments. Number one, I will try to take my T3 right before bed because I've only ever tried it later in the day at that mm-hmm. like 4, 5, 6 p.m. mark. So it was a 12-hour split. Gotcha. So I will give it a try and I'll let you know how it goes taking okay. it right before bed. Because maybe if you take it then, it won't interfere with my sleep because my mm-hmm. trouble is getting to sleep, not staying asleep. Gotcha. So mm-hmm. I will give that a try. Now, yeah. I did see a study and I'll have to dig it up. I've saved it some. Somewhere because it was that interesting. And of course, whenever you're looking at medical literature, research papers, you have to kind of really look at the variables and, and what is the actual standard deviation and how much difference did, did the results actually make. But there was one study that I found that showed that taking T4 right before bed, just like you said, Weston, improved absorption. Mm-hmm. We have that TSH circadian rhythm where TSH rises right before bed. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, just better, nothing in your stomach. You right. haven't just, most of us don't Eat an hour or so before bed. So you go to bed on an empty stomach, you take your T4 right before bed, and then it has time to work. Now you're not gonna have that same cortisol response in the morning if as if you took T3 before bed. Right. But I also heard that T4 is better taken before bed. Have you ever seen that or read or read that study?
1: Yeah, yeah. In fact, I almost in almost all my articles, I always recommend people take all thyroid medication at night to start okay. with, right? Because I've seen the num- I've seen it happen so many times. So let me kind of just take a step back and look at thyroid patients as a whole. And there's mm-hmm. they're they're, you know, they're frustrated, they're, they're struggling. A lot of them are. And so I try to come up with just simple little tweaks that I can recommend to them that's within their control, right? Because a lot of the things we're talking about, to get T3, you probably need a doctor and you need someone to prescribe it. But if but if all you have to do is take switch from taking your T4 from the morning to the night, that's something you could do. Right. And that's that does have a profound or potentially a profound effect on the mm-hmm. person taking it. So I do talk about this a lot. Um, in a lot of the articles that I write, because I'm like, hey, you don't really have anything to lose. Take it in the middle, take it at night right before you go to bed. And there are some people, it's a small percentage, maybe five to 10% of people who see a really big difference just with that one change. Mm-hmm. And I will say too, let's think about our lifestyle. What do people do when they first wake up? A lot of people, they have some sort of for- form of coffee or caffeine, yep. right? That ca- yep. Caffeine, or I don't know, or, or uh, teas, stuff like that, energy drinks, whatever it is. And those things stimulate the gastrointestinal tract which means that if we're thinking about this in terms of thyroid medication, you take your thyroid medication, even if you take it an hour or two before you have your coffee, it's still going to be in there absorbing some, through some period of time. And if you're accelerating the which the, the rate at which it travels through the GI tract, that's less time it spends getting full, complete absorption, right? So the philosophy here for me is take it right before bed, like literally right before bed, put it right on your nightstand. There's yep. nothing else there. A glass of water nightstand, you know, because yep. you're, yes, you're going to have dinner. Maybe you have dinner at 7 p.m., but the last thing you do right before you lay down in your bed is usually not have a snack, at least for most people. Right. Right. And so if you just take it right before you lay down in bed, I think that then you have the entire night to, to, um, to allow that absorption. And then also going back to what I said previously, most people have um, their bowel movement in the morning, right? That's, you know, a lot of people use coffee to kind of stimulate that. So that's sort of why I do recommend the evening dosing of thyroid medication with the caveat that if you are one of those people that it keeps up, then definitely don't do it because the, the downside will outweigh the benefit. If you're somebody who can't sleep because sleep is so important for, you know, virtually every aspect of health.
0: I love that. Now I'm uh, going to try it. I'm going to try. I'm going to try right before. Don't, bed don't get mad at
1: me. If you, if you can't stay up all night,
0: but it, but it is true, though. I mean, I do tend to. And with T3, and you can tell me if you agree on this or not, with T3, you have a little more leeway than you do with T4 when it t- comes to coffee. So I can take my T3 in the morning, and I can drink coffee maybe half an hour to 45 minutes mm. later. Now, it, maybe it's the dose I'm on. Maybe it's because I've been on it for 20 years. Maybe sure. it's because my body's just optimize that some of it's not getting absorbed and and I just don't even know it because I feel good but don't do you agree or have you seen the t3 you have a little bit more uh, I hate to say this because then people start doing it you have a little more leeway with t3 than t4 in terms of coffee
1: I think that's probably true. Yeah, I think I generally I, I do. I, I say it with somewhat, uh, so with some hesitancy because yep. I'm like, oh, what, what are people gonna do now? And because it's just, it's just this, you know, it's a fickle thing, right? Because it might work, and here's another thing too. This might work for 25% of people and not the other 75. So if you have this huge number of people trying this and then it doesn't work for the rest of them, we're like, this didn't work. But yeah, I think that's probably true because I do think it's absorbed fairly rapidly, especially compared to T4. I don't know why that that is. Um, I, I just think it's probably more immediate immediate absorption compared to T4. Um, so yes, I would agree with that, that statement generally. But- But, you know, just for anyone listening to it, you know, just play around with it, pay attention to what is happening in your body. If you take it and you you feel worse or you notice you're going down, well, then maybe you're not one of those people that can do this. Um, So again, just, you know, pay attention to your own health. I think that's probably one of the most important things I could say to people is that, you know, your health is the most important thing you have. So spend some time reflecting on it and seeing what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And when you spend that time and energy on your health, it'll be, it'll be paid back to you tenfold, I think.
0: And I would say if you are still suffering with symptoms, don't even try. To, to shorten yeah. that timeframe, you want as much mm-hmm. time between that thyroid med and coffee supplements, food, because mm-hmm. you want that one hundred percent absorption. If we can get there,
1: absolutely, yeah. I, I didn't even think about that, but that's totally true. The situation that you're in, the situation that my wife is in, there are you guys are already optimized. You've been optimized for a long time, years. Mm-hmm. Most people aren't even in co- anywhere close to that optimization. You know, their goal is to become even like you know seventy five percent optimized. But yeah. if you, yeah, you know your body probably significantly better than I would say the majority of thyroid patients as does my wife. And so I, just because they, they, you know, kind of have more guidance and they maybe have a little more um, uh, experience doing this sort of thing. Um, But yeah, if you're not optimized, I agree with you. Do not even mess around with that. Try, try the evening thing before, because that's something that could potentially improve your optimization. This is something that has uh, maybe some, some impact on your, your routine and your schedule and your quality of life, but may come at the cost of some uh, reduction in symptoms or imp- increase in symptoms, depending on how you absorb and, and your intestinal tract and whatnot. And also, I think another important thing is your gut function. You probably have pretty good gut function. You know how to eat. You've probably been eating this way for a long time. You know. Yep. Um, and if you're somebody who has disordered gut problems or you know intestinal overgrowth syndromes or whatever it is, then then taking it like this is probably not a good idea either because your your absorption is already compromised. So I'd add Very that kind true. of thought in there as well.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. Very, very true. Very true. And that leads me to my last question Then I want to get to some of your viewers, listeners questions. In in terms of taking T3, and this is good. This is just a great segue. What about putting it under your tongue? Does putting T3 under your tongue and letting it dissolve, let's say you do have a gut issue. Mm -hmm. Does putting T3 under your tongue actually help with absorption versus swallowing it?
1: Yeah, so I, I did an article on this as well recently. So I'd recommend that you know for a more in-depth sort of evaluation of this, um, I would recommend looking at that. So here's sort of the, here's sort of the way to think about that. The the question as to whether or not thyroid hormone is small enough to be absorbed sublingually and has the right properties can it actually be absorbed under the tongue? And the answer is yes, theoretically it can be. So you have whenever you're looking about sublingual absorption of things, you have to you have to think about the size of it because here's the idea: like the idea is that certain medications can be absorbed under the tongue because there's a rich network of capillaries under there. So when something dissolves, it's plausible that this substance can go into those capillaries, be absorbed into your blood, and then push throughout the rest of your body. So people are like, okay, well, then why don't I just put everything under my tongue? Well, it it, it doesn't quite work that way. There's a membrane there. It must be absorbable. There must have certain properties. It must, uh, the, the outside of the 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 molecule or the compound must be uh, a compound that doesn't reject that absorption because it either can't pass through the membrane because it's too big or because it's charged and it's getting attached to saliva or other proteins inside of your mouth. There are a lot of factors to think about, but when you look at actual T four and T three T four and T three thyroid hormone, yeah, it turns out they are small enough to theoretically be absorbed under the tongue. Now the question is, is that actually plausible does it actually happen when you do it and i think the answer is it's probably 50/50 depending on the person um, and i say that because there's a lot of different factors the ph of your mouth matters um, how much how how little can you get the compound so if you if you look if you think about the tablet of a t3 um, or if you're or a capsule even depending on how you're getting it but let's just think about it in terms of, of a tablet if you were to crush that tablet into pieces into a fine powder you could put that under there and that would de- that would increase the surface area because you have decreased the total size of this thing right you've you smashed it out so you're increasing the chance that it could make it through that membrane but if you like chewed it up in your mouth and then put it under your tongue that probably wouldn't work very well um and likewise if you wanted to get even even more precise about it you could do a, a liquid version like a tyrosine or something like that that actually comes in a gel cap you could break that up or you could get tyrosine soul, and then you could put that under your tongue because that's already liquid. It's already been mashed up and dissolved into a liquid. So, Yes, it can potentially work. There are also other things that you can do. I can't remember them off the top of my head, but you can do things. I think it's like increase the acidity um, of your of the saliva inside of your mouth. So you can take it with some sort of, sort of sort of acid to try and improve that absorption and so on. So there are things you can try to do to tweak it. My general recommendation is give it a try. It's one of those things that you can try and see because worst case scenario, you mash it up or put it in a powder stick it in your mouth, leave it on your tongue for a couple of minutes, uh, five to 10 minutes, whatever it is. And if it doesn't get absorbed under the tongue, well, then it's gonna be washed in the back of your throat and you're gonna swallow it. It's gonna go down to your intestinal tract anyway. So it's worth giving it a shot and seeing how it works for you. And that's sort of, you know, if I could, if I could uh, distill down my article, that's essentially what I say in there. So give it a try. And if it works for you, great. If it doesn't, then that's fine too. It's sort of like taking your thyroid medication in the evening. If it works for you, great. And if it doesn't, well, you know, no harm, no foul. It didn't hurt you in the process. So okay. what, what do you think about that? Are you, do you Have you tried this before? I I
0: use that method on patients that have really disastrous Mm. GI tracks. So let's say we did a GI map on them and they have H. pylori and there's SIBO or there's candida, especially candida. Yeah. Really common, really common. So in that case, and, and you really, I mean, it's really hard to do with NDT because let's face it, it doesn't yeah. even smell good, let alone no, putting it under your tongue. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. But in the case of T3, if it is like you said, a cap or not a capsule, an actual pill, yeah. um, a hard pill, then try it. Yeah. Give it mm. a try. Because if we can even increase your absorption of that T3 by 20%, that's huge. That's mm-hmm. a big deal in terms oh, of yeah. your symptoms, in terms of moving numbers. So again, why not give it a try if you really have a a messed up gut and you know it.
1: Mm-hmm. Even if you
0: have indigestion all the time, if you're gassy and bloated after every single meal. I mean, granted, you want to do some gut healing and, and address that. Course, but if yeah. that is you and you're on fiber medication, put it under your tongue and see.
1: Mm-hmm. And this just adds one other variable that you can tweak in your regimen, right? So we have the time of day that you take your thyroid medication, whether or not you take it under your tongue, how you are taking, it, are you mashing it up? Are you masticating it with your teeth? Or are you, you know, mortal, mortal and pestle it, um, you know, put it into a fine powder. And then the the variations of T4 and T3, and then the formulations of T4 and T3, you know, so like between all these variables, there are hundreds of different combinations that you can come up with. And I, I promise you, there is some combination in there that will work for, for you, the person listening to this, who is like, well, I've tried this and that and this and this no i promise as long as you have somebody who is willing to go with you and guide you through this you will find something that works for you so Definitely. um did you have any thoughts or do you want to jump into some of these questions but these are no good, let's I think. jump into
0: some of your questions okay yeah. so I,
1: I got some other good ones so these ones focus a lot on weight loss and actually we came over some of these but okay so let me read this one to you and then i'll i'll throw this one over to you because i think um this this will be a good one for you so uh it says is there anything i can do to help let go um, of the weight while getting to a normal immune response and work on my thyroid numbers in this and this in my own quotations in the setting of Hashimoto's so essentially this person is trying to lose weight and improve immune function and thyroid function with Hashimoto. so how can this person do that in your Ooh, opinion
0: okay all right so for me I, you know i start at the top so let's make sure that you're optimized you're on the right medication you're taking it the right way we're doing all the different tweaks that you and i just talked about in terms of dosing and timing and time of day and and delivery Mm -hmm. And then we go down from there and we say, listen, most Hashimoto patients, in my experience, about 95% of them have some kind of insulin resistance because if the thyroid is off, then the the insulin signaling will be off. Even the sex hormones are going to be off. So Mm -hmm. we have to now drop down and say, are you insulin resistant? Do you need to be on a low-carb diet? Do you need to be on berberine to lower that insulin? to allow your body to actually tap into your own fat stores for fuel. And then when you do that, you're taking down inflammation because insulin is so inflammatory. So right now you're dealing with an autoimmune condition and you're talking about your your own immunity. Well, okay, there are things that we can do for our immunity and check those boxes like vitamin D and zinc and vitamin C. We can use black cumin seed oil or LDN to lower your Hashimoto antibodies. But then on the other side, we have to think about What are we doing to support all of your hormonal functions? If your insulin is high, that's going to create inflammation and that's going to drive autoimmune to to go on on attack, that'll drive your soldiers that you have for Hashimoto's, I always use the analogy of soldiers that are going out and attacking your thyroid gland, any kind of inflammation in the body is going to spur on an autoimmune attack. Mm -hmm. So we know that gluten is a molecular mimicker to the thyroid gland, we know that that is going to spur on an autoimmune attack. Mm -hmm. But I would argue as well, the inflammatory (laughs) grains, the PUFAs, the bad oils, all of those things that increase insulin, not only is that going to make you gain, more weight prevent you from losing weight, but that's going to kick up an autoimmune attack, which then downregulates your thyroid, which then downregulates your metabolism. And it's just this vicious, vicious cycle. So thyroid first, insulin, sex hormones, progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, DHEA, cortisol. We have to look at all of those. Once we balance all of that, provided you're doing the nutrients over here. Things start to happen and your body actually starts to tap into your fat stores for fuel and allows you to burn fat for energy.
1: Mm-hmm. That yeah, that, was, no, that was amazing. That that was a master class in how to treat Hashimoto's essentially. Right. <laughs> uh, you minutes. know, yeah. yeah, no, no, that was really good. That was awesome. Yeah. So um agreeing with everything you just said. Uh, what I would say. What I would add to that is I wouldn't actually add on anything that I'll just give my own philosophy and because, like I said, that was perfect. Um, I think when people first of all, a lot of thyroid patients they struggle with weight gain. I get that, right? Because you have to think about what is the thyroid doing for your body, it's it's regulating your metabolism. The majority of your metabolism is regulated by the thyroid. So people will say. Well, how can I lose weight with my thyroid? You have to optimize your thyroid, period, end of story. You know, like if you're taking level thyroxine, which most people are, and your TSH is like two and two and a half, you know, losing weight, it's like it's like trying to run a marathon with, I don't know, a tire strapped to your back or something. Like it's, yeah. it's just, or pressing the gas and the brake simultaneously. It's just not going to work. So I usually talk to patients, I'm like, look, Yes, you can get down. You, you, we can absolutely help you lose weight. That is absolutely going to happen. But first, we need to optimize your thyroid. And then what I think you, you've mentioned before, and we've kind of talked about this or at least alluded to it in previous uh, um, questions and topics that we talked about, is that the, the thyroid regulates a lot of other things downstream. And so what I will usually say is I'm like, look, let's start with the thyroid. If we optimize your medication first and foremost, we put back in the things that the thyroid gland needs, we'll find that a lot of these things will be cleaned up a lot of them, like you might even see improvement in sex hormones, your your menstrual cycle might, might start to regulate itself. You will see at least some improvement in weight. Not It doesn't usually completely reverse itself by fixing the thyroid. You need to do other things, like you said, insulin and so on, leptin resistance and whatnot. But Some people do at least see some improvement in their weight and they'll see these things start to be cleaned up as they, they approach or as they fix their thyroid function. And that usually starts with thyroid medication for most people. And there's a lot of people who want to do the natural route. And I have nothing against the natural route. I just think that when it comes to managing thyroid function, you can get the best and most immediate return on your investment by starting thyroid medication first. And then if you want to down later on in six to 12 months, once your weight is normalized, once all these other problems have been cleaned up, we can start to wean you off of thyroid medication see how that goes. But that's where I always start. And if someone's coming to me, that's you know, or, or in the past, that's probably what they're looking for, right? Um, but if you're somebody who wants to go all natural and treat it, try and do it with diet and foods and things like that, without touching medication, you, you can you can do that. It's just going to take a little bit longer. The, the journey is going to be a little more difficult. It's going to have a little more bumps. It's going to be slower. That's fine though, right? It's all philosophical. It's whatever you want to do. So yeah, I, I don't have much to add to what you said, except that yeah, I would think about it in those terms. Fix the thyroid first, then the weight loss will come. Not because you are fixing the thyroid, because the thyroid is regulating other things like insulin and leptin and your sex hormones and your testosterone and everything else downstream. And yep. those are the things that usually have the biggest impact in thyroid patients on their weight. It's not actually the thyroid. I think it's a cascade. I think it's like the thyroid causes all these problems underneath it. And then these things contribute to the weight, but fixing the thyroid, you could still be overweight, even though the thyroid is fixed because you haven't fixed the thing underneath it. So yep. that's kind of that's kind of how I look at that. Um, anything think- to add on that?
0: No, I I 100% agree. I always say both and. So we have to do the the thyroid and Mm -hmm. change your diet and fix the insulin and fix the hormones. Because if we fix your thyroid all day long, we can optimize your thyroid and you're still hitting McDonald's. No, (laughs) you're not going to lose weight. It's not going to work. You're going to be a ball of inflammation and your Hashimoto's is going to spur on. So.
1: And, yeah. and th- this is something that I've been uh, frustrated with because I think, uh, again, kind of coming back to the language that people use, is I, I and I'm sure you've probably seen this, but I talk to people and they always are thinking they're eating healthy. They'll tell me they're doing things, and and we just must have different definitions of what these things are. And I do my best to try and explain them. And when I say this, this is really what I mean. And so I think that there's a lot of people who are like, oh, this makes sense to me. I'm already doing a lot of these things. You probably are not. If you're not seeing the results that that you're hoping for, reducing inflammatory oils. If if, if that doesn't make sense to you, if if you're listening to this. And and you're thinking, what are inflammatory oil- oils? Figure that out and remove those from your diet. You know, mm-hmm. uh, We could explain it to you, but you have to be able to look at them. You have to be able to educate yourself enough to look at these things and remove the inflammatory oils, to remove the process and refined carbohydrates and the sugars and, and the things that we're talking about and, and these things that are causing inflammation and triggering all these things downstream, down like Amy said. So I just want to throw that little tidbit out there. Um, let's do... Let's do this because we already talked. I'm going to skip a couple of these just in the in the interest of time here. Let's go to this one. This one says, what are your thoughts on sustained release T3? What do you think, Amy?
0: So in general, and I, I I have a feeling that we agree on this, but in general, I only use the sustained release T3 in patients that are super, super sensitive. So let's say we're using regular T3. We're using cytomel euthyrenate, mm-hmm. and we're, we're starting off... Maybe we're starting at five. Now, we said earlier that is a baby dose, and I mm-hmm. agree. That's that's enough for, like, your pinky finger. But, right. but we want to start somewhere and get you used to it and then gradually increase. So let's mm-hmm. say we start with that five micrograms once a day, twice a day, and you're like, oh, my gosh, my heart's racing. I can't yeah. take it. I have anxiety. I don't know what to do. I feel like I'm crawling out of my skin. Okay, well, then let's try the slow release because mm-hmm. maybe you just need that trickle into your body very slowly through the day to get you used to it. But in general, someone who let's say their optimal dose of T3 is 25 twice a day, 50 twice a day, 75 twice a day, slow release T3 is not gonna cut it. Mm-hmm. You just have to take those multi, those double doses or the multi-dose through the day, however you wanna time it, and and get that full dose in. I don't think slow release really cuts it. And I also see issues with different compounding pharmacies. Mm-hmm. Some are good, some are man, not so good. And I've had compounding pharmacies mess up the dosing in my patients medication. So unless you have a really good compounding pharmacy that you know, you trust, you've been using for a while, you know, they're they're a one m one, and they will compound that slow release perfectly to the right dose for you. Fine. But other than that, I'd like to try to avoid it when I can.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah yeah it's funny we agree on like almost everything exactly but yeah i would say that's exactly how i think about it um i i there are people and i just want to throw this out there because we people will say, oh well, what what's a starting dose? What should I be on? If five micrograms isn't enough, what should I be on? I will tell you, I have seen people on anywhere from doses of as, as small as one half of a microgram all the way up to a hundred plus micrograms of T3, and and everywhere in between. So it's yeah. really hard to just say, you know, uh, well the, uh, the the dose that you need five five isn't working, but it's going to be fifteen. And if I look at your labs and do some sort of you know calculation, I can figure out what it is. It does not work that way. I, I wish it did, but it just doesn't. You need to you need to go through. You need to do some trial and error. You need to figure it out. So um, I would add that kind of as a preface to what I'm going to say. And, and that is also, I think the other reason that I don't like using sustained release T3 or SRT3 is because I think only a fraction of it is actually getting absorbed. The whole point of using this, this, this medication or or compounding in this way is to slow down the absorption. You're making it intentionally more difficult to absorb inside the intestinal tract so that you don't get flushed. The system doesn't get flushed with T3. Now that's can be good if you're somebody, like you said, who is very sensitive and gets heart palpitations and so on. Um, which by the way, heart palpitations aren't even necessarily a harmful thing. It's just a sensation, right? It doesn't actually mean that most people will assume their heart palpitation means that they must be having heart pain or a rapid heart rate. That's not true at all. Most most heart palpitations are not even associated with a rapid heart rate. It's just a sensation that your heart is beating fast. So I would push back on the idea that heart palpitations are somehow dangerous in any way. Uh, but some people, they're uncomfortable and I respect that. So that's why this does have a place in some situations. But but by reducing or slowing down its absorption, that can cut both ways, right? You might give somebody a 50 microgram dose of T3 and only get 20, 25, 30 micrograms of that total dose inside of your body. Compound that with the idea that, like you said, not all compounding pharmacies are created equal. Therefore, you might even get a less, you know, a fra- some fraction of that fraction. And then by that point, you're like, well, what, how much am I actually getting? You know, what, what is going into my body? How, how can we use this? So I don't for those reasons I don't like starting with it but I I have used it I, and I have used it many times I, I do think it has a place like anything uh, it's just not my preferred method. I think lyothyronine and Cytomel tend to be better. Um, they're more regulated in terms of like the, the dosing where they have to fall and whatnot. And they just seem to work, I think, for most people, right? So uh, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now. All right, this one I think is uh, gonna be up your, your alley since uh, we talked about this a little bit. And this might be the last one. Do you, can we do a, maybe one? We can do a one,
0: couple more, yeah. Okay, one, okay. okay. More, yeah.
1: All right, okay. So this one says, I keep gaining weight on 1,650 calories and work out every day. Why can't I lose weight? So what what, what do you think about that?
0: All right, so let's start with calories don't matter. Mm. Calories in, calories out have been debunked. We gotta get Mm. out of the 1980s, out of the 1990s, out of our way of thinking back then Mm. about counting calories. If I gave you, I could easily give you twelve hundred, or even let's go down a notch. Let's go with one thousand. Let's go a calorie deficit. I can give you a thousand calories a day in Oreos, pasta, and bread, or I could give you twenty five hundred calories a day in clean, grass fed meat, in in avocados, and good fats, and vegetables with olive oil, and you would gain weight on the one thousand calories a day of garbage Mm. and insulin spiking food and you would lose weight on the 2500 calorie a day diet of clean low carb I would say low Mm. carbohydrate Mm. moderate carbohydrate no processed food diet because it's what the food does when it gets into our body so we talked about insulin earlier especially if you are a hypothyroid Hashimoto patient and you are insulin resistant you're not addressing that yet it really doesn't matter what you eat your your body's going to be insulin resistant to that food. So you're going to be producing insulin in response to the food that you eat. That insulin's going out, trying to lower your blood glucose. It's not because you're insulin resistant, can't get into the cell. Now you have this excess hormone that is the fat storage hormone. It's needed for life, but it is the fat storage hormone Mm -hmm. when it's in excess. So it doesn't matter what you eat or how many calories you eat, you're always going to be storing as fat. So we have to address that. And then we have to address the type of food that is in that 1600 calorie day diet. Because if it is high-carbohydrate and it's spiking your insulin, if it's inflammatory, going back to the the poofas and the bad oils, then you're going to continue gaining weight. It doesn't matter the calories in, calories out equation. It's the quality of the food and what it's doing when it actually enters your body on a physiological level. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, again, uh, 100% agree with that. I would say what I think people uh, misunderstand about this, well, there's a lot… Let me put this into a, a different context as well. So I think when you look at like social media and Instagram, especially, I think there's a lot of influencers out there. And I don't know if this is pervasive in, in the uh, in that circle because I don't spend a lot of time on there. But there used to be this concept of if it fits your macros, right? Is that still a thing that's around? The, you know, if, I try not. to stay off social media oh, okay. too, but yeah, okay. I think
0: the, I think the macro thing is floating around because I'll get those questions. Okay, like, what should my macros be? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So, well, there there was an idea that, and this kind of goes on on your point was was that look, it doesn't actually matter what um, what kind of food you're putting in your mouth, as long as it fits some sort of set of macros, right? This is this idea that, that this would essentially be that food or the quality of food doesn't matter. But what you're trying to say, what I'm agreeing with here is that the quality of the food matters a lot. And when you were talking about, a lot of people kind of have a hard time wrapping their head around this, but let's just think about it for a second. Let's imagine that you're, you're following this and you're thinking, okay, well, I'm gonna eat my 1650 calories but look, I gotta have Pop-Tarts. I gotta have something like that, right? Something that has inflammatory um, uh, and processed inflammatory oils, processed foods and refined sugars and something like that. So just imagine what happens when that gets inside of your body. It's going to cause a spike in insulin, right? Which can can trigger or exacerbate insulin resistance. It's going to trigger inflammation. So if you have, let's say Hashimoto's, you're putting something in your body, which is pro-inflammatory, which could lower thyroid function. So we have two ways just in this one example in which this could impact your hormones negatively that control your weight. You're putting something in that's suppressing, lowering thyroid function, which regulates metabolism. So you're lowering your metabolism. If you're eating less calories, then you have something that's just spiking your insulin, causing insulin resistance, which is causing you to store fat. So this is kind of how I want you guys to wrap your head around this. It's not the calories per se, as it, so much as it is the quality of that food, which is exactly what Amy is saying here. I'm just trying to draw the line between what happens once this food goes in your body and how it impacts these hormones, which then regulate your body weight right? So you could be eating 1650 calories. I see people eating 1200 calories and they can't lose weight, right? This happens very frequently within hypothyroid patients. And I think a lot of this is because when we talked about the very beginning, the thyroid controls these other sex hormones, right? It controls, or at least to some degree, regulates insulin, leptin, cortisol, um, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, right? All these things are being somewhat regulated at the level of the thyroid. So if the thyroid is down because you're putting some inflammatory food in, which is drawing down the thyroid, then all of these things are going to suffer as a result. And then you're going to be left wondering, why can't I lose weight? And I'm, I'm, I'm reducing my calories, but you're not eating the right type of food, right? And your thyroid is not regulated. So uh, like I said, everything you said, I a hundred percent agree with. I just wanted to sort of string that sort of along.
0: Let me add one more thing too, because I just saw this last week. I think this is a tendency of Frustrated hypothyroid patients who aren't yet optimized to do, you keep reducing your calories out of frustration. You think maybe less food, less food, less food. I had one patient that without telling me went down into 800 calories a day because, you know, we were just starting. I mean, it's like month one, right? We don't even have her fire burning yet in her metabolism. So Mm. we're just climbing up and getting her optimized. And she figured, well, I'll just drop my calories even more. That will help. What that did is actually put her body in a survival mode and it increased her reverse t3 because her body basically said listen if you're gonna starve me I'm not going to lose. I'm not, no, I'm not going to let fat stores go. We need to mm-hmm. hold on to these fat stores for dear life because this is a starvation time, yep. and it, it made the whole situation worse and actually dropped her metabolism and increased her reverse T3. Yeah,
1: and then you have to sort of clean up that mess. So I, what yeah. I what I would say to, to people: a uh, caution. Please do not do that because yes, you may have some temporary relief. Sometimes you might temporarily lose some weight, but it comes at a cost to your thyroid. And then somebody's you know someone like Dr. Avi she's going to have to come and clean that up. And it it doesn't it doesn't happen quickly always. You know, this could take months and sometimes even years, depending on how severe that was. In the case of my wife, it took several years, by the way, to get her metabolism back up. And I know you had a a different sort of way of getting there, but similar with your competitions and whatnot. But I don't know how long it took you to sort of normalize that, but it's not usually not quick. It's Um, not
0: fast and people hmm. think that it's going to be. I'm glad you said that.
1: Yeah, and and so having those expectations, yeah, you do not want to mess with the metabolism. Just it's a slow mover, right? And uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, this one's actually fairly easy. This this one just says what's a good starting dose of berberine. Oh, okay. So,
0: so for me, and I know we both love berberine, especially Mm. for insulin resistance, and it has so many different properties, gut healing, antioxidant. Mm. So, I like starting off with a minimum of twelve hundred milligrams per day. So, whether you split that up, if your berberine comes in four hundred. Take it three times. If it comes in Mm. 600, take it two times. But that's where I really like the, the starting
1: dose to be. Mm-hmm. yeah this this yeah it's pretty straightforward I would say it depends on what you're taking it with. Um, I'm a huge fan so if in the case of like let's say we're using berberin um, and we're using it for something like insulin resistance and weight loss i would i would combine it with other things so i wouldn't i generally don't just take one thing by themselves I say look let's take a couple different things that that work via slightly different mechanisms so that they can you know augment one another um because what you do see happen and the same thing kind of happens with metformin is you get diminishing returns on higher doses so from let's say zero to like a thousand you know you might get a 90 percent benefit and then if you go from a thousand to two thousand then you get a five percent benefit right? I'm just making these numbers up, but this is the idea of diminishing returns. And so this, this sort of concept occurs with Metformin. So my philosophy is, okay, understanding that there are diminishing returns there, I say, look, let's get the maximum amount that we can from the, the, some dose. So I think it's about a 1, thousand, 1200. We're, we're right around that same kind of range there. And then what we'll do is let's add something else. Let's have an alpha, lipo, alpha lipoic acid, let's add fish oil, let's add turmeric, something like this, which can also help treat the insulin resistance and try and get the maximum minimize or maximize the benefit of this at the lowest possible dose, which 1000 is not a big dose. You know, I, I don't think so. Some people take 2,000, 2,500. Um, but I think that's kind of how I philosophically approach dosing these things. So use, don't just use one thing, try and complex it with another, because you find your butt. You might find your body does really well on one and, you know, marginally good on another. They usually don't cause any harm, especially berberine. I don't know that I've ever seen anyone have negative reactions to berberine that I can think of, but yeah, that's kind of how I think about that.
0: And where someone might be intolerant to metformin, you might be tolerant to berberin. So sure. if your doctor even prescribed you, let's say, 1,500 milligrams of metformin, and you're like, no, I just can't do it. I have I have GI distress. I have diarrhea constantly. It's not stopping. Mm-hmm. Then you can drop down to berberin, start with 500, 400, 500, 600, and then gradually work your way up to that 1,500 dose that was metformin. It works very similarly, uh, if not almost the same yeah. as as metformin just with different different properties and then i guess my question to you would be do you ever use metformin and berberine together
1: for sure yeah yeah, yeah okay. absolutely yeah i would i would be a, I, i'm a big fan of, of le, what i would call layering therapies and yep. so i would say look if, if we know insulin is a problem for you I, you could do metformin it's a cheap and and sometimes effective drug it's not a universally effective drug on everybody but it's cheap it's like 4 bucks or 5 bucks i don't know it's really cheap so throw it on there and just see what happens use it with berberine fish oil like i was saying alpha lipoic acid you can complex these all together Together and you could see even better results and then by the way if you can reduce the total amount of dose that you're taking of any individual thing that you're taking you're also simultaneously minimizing side effects so if you're taking three things at, at a minimal dose the minimal effective dose and not having to you know quadruple whatever the recommended bottle dose is which does happen sometimes and it can be effective by the way um, i just think it's safer to kind of use that philosophy let's use 500 to one thousand milligrams of metformin instead of Two thousand or twenty five hundred, mm-hmm. and complex it with you know five hundred to one one thousand milligrams of berberine, and you have a you have a much better combo than either of those by them by themselves. Mm-hmm. So that that was kind of how I look at that. Well, okay, I guess we'll uh, we'll stop it there. But for anyone listening to this, if you guys enjoyed this, please leave any more questions or comments that you have, because um, you know I'd love to get together with Dr. Amy again. I think. I think her and I, we, we just, we jive on a lot of the things that we talk yeah. about. And so it's really fun to have these conversations. And if there are other things that you maybe want to want us to elaborate on, leave them in the comments below, um, yep. do whatever it is and uh, go check out uh, Dr. Amy's podcast. What is it called? Thyroid Fixer? The Thyroid Fixer podcast, yep. And yeah. yours is Dr. Weston Childs, right? Yep, mine's, yep. you just search Dr. Weston Childs and yeah, check out Dr. Amy Horneman. Um, she is awesome. We have a lot of the similar philosophies in terms of how we treat, and she does a lot of great stuff with thyroid patients. Also, if you need anybody to help you, uh, go check her out. Cause you are, you are seeing people, right?
0: I am seeing people. Yep. Okay. Yep. So
1: check her out. Uh, she, she knows her stuff, obviously, um, as you can tell throughout this discussion. So definitely check her out and thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Dr. Amy, it was a pleasure chatting with you.
0: Oh, this was so much fun. We definitely have to do it again.
1: I think so too. All right. We'll see you later.